Hello, and welcome to the Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings, and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. How are you, E.C.? Good. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm I'm wonderful. We're gonna dive back into something. We we actually like we went hard at this idea for for a couple episodes, and then we just kind of drifted off. So we're gonna do a diet review. We've done this before in the past, two or three episodes. What do you remember? If there, how many we did? I think we did two like this format where we kind of okay. go over three at once, and I think then paleo be kind of became its own episode, <laughs> its own <beast>. which was <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, got it. Okay, so you just alluded to it, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack. Three different diets that folks have probably asked you a thousand questions about. Mm. So this time around, we're going to do the Galveston diet, the slow carb diet, and something called the specific carb diet. I've not heard of that last one, so I'm curious and interested to get there. Where shall we begin? Yeah, I mean, basically, I had asked my email list for these as well as social media. Kind of, again, most of these episodes come to be after just lots of different questions about them. And certainly these are popular questions. I don't know. I I shouldn't let the cat out of the bag too soon at the beginning of the episode here, but I'm just hoping that our regular listeners know that if I really believed any of these diets had a lot of, you know, legs to them, shall we say, I probably would have talked about them by now. Like, I don't want people to think that I'm holding back some secret. (laughs) (laughs) The secret, we've already given that one a bunch of times already. So I think some of the appeal from the questions is kind of understanding their claims. So hoping that's what we're going to tackle in this episode. Yeah, I think that's my favorite part about these episodes is just getting enough of a sense of what they are to be able to start to understand them. Not, I think, I don't think, I'd be surprised if anybody asked you about them thinking like, this is the one that EC is going to tell right. me what I could go do. Right. Again, as, <laughs> as you just said, we've already done that already. Fruits <laughs> and vegetables, yeah. eat some protein. Right. Okay, let's start then with the first one first, Galveston diet. What is that? And what's the the kind of the basic premise? Yeah. Yeah, and I really feel like we've really hammered this demographic a lot, topic a lot, and it's the diets that are geared towards women in menopause. It's like, OMG, we're talking about this again. (laughs) And so, yeah, I'm going to start with the punchline. All of the stuff that I've said about weight loss, including that for menopause, still stands, and nothing in the Galveston Diet book changed my mind or convinced me to change my recommendations regarding that. So we'll put the link for the podcast episode in the show notes. But this diet was developed by an MD doctor. She's an OBGYN, and no surprise, she came up with the doctor as came up with the diet as the way to deal with her weight gain during the menopause transition. So it's sort of the way that she figured out to take weight off for herself. And the name of the diet, as far as I understand, is the name of the town in Texas where she's from. So the diet itself, yeah, I know it's like, what does that have to do with anything, right? (laughs) So the diet itself has three kind of factors. The first is a specific macronutrient ratio. The book states that starting in one's 30s, there is this precise ratio of fat to carbs to protein that allows one to burn fat as fuel. The second kind of premise of the diet or factor of the diet is intermittent fasting. And generally she recommends a 16-8 schedule. So this would be that overnight fast where if you finished in around 7 p.m., you don't eat for another 16 hours. So then you would start breakfast around 11 a.m. And then your feed window is between this 11 and 7 hours. So that's the second kind of factor. And then the third is what she calls anti-inflammatory nutrition 
which of course in that she rolls the fact that you're going to have to like limit your added sugars and process carbs and additives and preservatives and increase no surprise fruits and veggies. So the book is much like many of the others that we have discussed makes these claims that calories in and calories out don't work or it's irrelevant or it's outdated and that somehow intermittent fasting is doing something besides cutting calories and it also kind of renames I feel like basic nutrition, <laughs> you know, it's calling it anti-inflammatory nutrition. We're basically talking about eating more fruits, veggies, and protein. And she then has these lists of kind of approved fruits and vegetables, you know, better and worse ones among the bunch uh, to try to rate them in sense of like, okay, focus on these and not the other ones. Okay. So at least some of that, uh, we can, we can already guess that like you're, you're kind of throwing out, <laughs> throwing out the window, but can we, right. can we just talk about like which, which parts of that kind of basic premise? Cause some of that makes a little bit of sense, right? We've talked about inter sure. intermittent fasting, not being a, a panacea, but like just simply reducing the amount of time that one yep. has to eat can create a calorie deficit just cause you've got fewer sure. minutes in which you can eat food. So some of this feels like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And some of it obviously yeah. feels like What's that? So can we unpack some of the claims to help us kind of understand like which parts of this particular diet are maybe worth paying attention to and which parts are worth, again, kind of ignoring wholesale? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, can the, the Galveston diet work for an individual? Yes, of course. Is it the only diet that will help women lose weight and specifically lose weight in menopause? No, and not by a long shot. And it's just for the reason that you mentioned, it's like these factors can be part of the overall picture for the same principles that we discuss all the time. And really bothers me about diets like this is it's almost presented as though they've found something new. You know, my diet approach has helped th thousands of people and I love it. And I do believe there's something new in the sense of bringing clarity to people as well as a sustainable approach to nutrition. But the reason why, let's just stick with weight loss, the reason why it can drive weight loss is not unique. Like it's because we're still establishing the right amount of calories, macros and micros for the person's goals. And that's what many people before me have done as well. And so, yes, even though I'm biased towards my method, I somehow still have to come to terms with the fact that other diet approaches work. <laughs> like I have to figure out, okay, how did all these other people before me have success or even concurrent to me have success as well as why does my diet approach works? Like why does the 800 gram challenge help lose people? people lose weight? And why can intermittent fasting help people lose weight? And I find that, especially in these books, they don't really do that. Get that, that that's not a great sales approach to say that what you have is not that novel. Yeah. But, you know, so often the way that these diets are presented as some groundbreaking scientific discovery, and that's just not really the case. And so starting with that fasting aspect, because that's definitely a big part of her approach, she mentions it quite a lot. You know, again, if you love fasting because it helps you lose weight, more power to you. I totally understand. It can simplify this whole dieting thing. We don't have to count much in terms of our food. We just look at the clock. I totally get it. The problem is it's not foolproof. There's plenty of people who have done fasting and have not lost weight. And that's what the review paper by Welton in the show notes says. And this is what we talked about in the fasting episode and presented even more research. But basically, fasting is no different than caloric restriction. And so... That's what I would love people who are really into fasting simply admit. Like it's no additional benefit. It's not working in a different way unless it's more sustainable for that person. And then they can say, you know, in my experience, I find it's more sustainable. 
yada, yada, yada. And I think those couple simple additions can be really valuable because when it's presented in some new radical way, I find that it's very confusing to the public and it's almost, um, it's just, it's just inaccurate to what the science says and it's just overall confusing for people. Now, the best part about this whole intermittent fasting debate and whether or not it's novel and is when I look at the citations they use in their book, they argue my point, <laughs> not theirs. You know, and the problem is with these mainstream diet books is there's a lot of references there. People aren't experts in the topic, so they just see the references and like, oh, wow, this is a well-referenced book. But when I take them and I look through them, it's like the references do not provide support for the specific claims that they're saying. So for example, in chapter 10 of this book, it's talking about how to apply the Galveston diet in the long term. And in the section titled continue intermittent fasting, so it's the idea that we're going to continue with fasting, right? It talks about it as an effective alternative to counting calories. And it cites the study by Steger that I'll put in the show notes. Okay, this study gives it away in the title, intermittent and continuous energy restriction results in similar weight loss, weight loss maintenance, and body composition changes in a six-month randomized pilot study. So right here, the study that she's citing to suggest that we should continue intermittent fasting is saying that intermittent fasting is not different from cutting calories. That's what energy is. And yet it's in the section to promote intermittent fasting over cut cutting calories. And so I just think that's a little bit deceptive. Um, I also think it's interesting to use that reference because back in chapter two, she addresses the fact that calories in and calories out as an outdated model. If this paper again is showing that cutting calories can be an effective way to lose weight. And so it kind of counter kind of contradicts itself. And it's just a very odd reference to use in support of intermittent fasting and intermittent fasting only. Okay, a couple more things about the claims. I will also tell you there's not one reference in the book that says her macronutrient percentages that she outlines are necessary and optimal for weight loss. You know, the body has a really wide strike zone in terms of what macronutrients it can thrive on. And so people spend so much time worrying about up 5% here and down 5% there doesn't matter. And I'll also tell you there's not one single reference in her book that shows that her approved or better fruits and vegetables are truly the ones that are necessary for weight loss or even affecting menopausal symptoms. So again, why would you get results on a diet like this? It's because she creates a caloric deficit through whole foods and, you know, fruits and veggies and protein and just cutting the calories overall. The specifics around what time to eat or the specifics around it has to be this whole food or that that is irrelevant. Okay, so that was the Galveston diet. Let's move on to the second one in our list, the slow carb diet. And I will I will tell you up front, I'm a fan of Tim Ferriss, so be nice to him. Yeah. Uh, give me a give me the basic premise of what this slow carb diet is. And I will say, I've heard him say it a thousand times, but I've never actually paid any any more attention to like, okay, that's a thing. So I'm actually I'm curious. I'm joking aside. I'm yeah. very curious your thoughts on this and even just what it is. So let's start with that. What is this low yeah. carb diet? Yeah, it was created by Tim Ferriss. I didn't know until starting to look this up. It was in the four hour body, which admittedly I have not read. That did come out some time ago, I think 2010 ish. But I got a few questions about the slow carb diet recently, and I think it's because Tim was on the Huberman podcast not too long ago, and that's right. where it kind of resurfaced. So I went and I watched that segment, and I just want to be clear that my entire knowledge about the diet is basically a quick Google search and then watching that five, 10 minute segment. So I have not looked into all the things that Tim recommends about it, his blog or a book or any, or the book, anything like that. So Tim says that this diet is for those that want to improve their body composition, lose fat and increase their muscle mass. So we've certainly heard that goal before. That's a popular one. And his intent with the diet was 
to make it really easy to adhere to, which, you know, just hearing that is like the first initial thought for a diet. I'm like, yes, <laughs> I love it. I love the idea right there. And so the diet seems to have five, five-ish major rules. The first is you can't drink your calories. The second is you can't eat anything white, like whitish in color, potatoes, grains, even things like oatmeal. You know, I think it's really just trying to get away from the high carb processed stuff. The third rule is to eat 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. The fourth, which is probably going to be the hardest for me to agree to, it's to avoid fructose, but mm. he includes all, not just added sugar, but all fructose, even in fruit. And then so what you're left with is these meals that are really just vegetables, beans and lentils, which he's really big on, and then protein. And so that's pretty much the diet. But then you have this sort of redemption once a week in a cheap, epic cheat meal day. Yeah, yeah. So he really encouraged you to take one day and just go nuts. So it's basically protein, beans and veggies on repeat for six of the seven days. And then once a week, you have this reprieve where you just kind of go off the reservation and eat whatever you want. Okay. So of those five, obviously you hinted at the one that was like, mm, I don't know about that. But overall <laughs> thoughts on thoughts on this as, as you can tell what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously I have to jump on the, the no fruit one right away. <laughs> I, I just hate that it keeps getting lumped into like added sugar as though it's the same thing. I just feel like it does people a disservice, disservice, even if it's for this brief period of time, even if it's like a jumping off diet template, because I feel like when you restrict a food, if it's not part of the base original foods that they get, it's automatically considered less than, right? It's like, oh, well, fruit is a maybe type of thing. So mm -hmm. I think we've talked about that enough that that one I just, I can't get on board with. Uh, now, I will say that I really did appreciate listening to Tim give his opinions and rationale for the diet more so than I liked it after the quick Google sur mm -hmm. uh, search, because as I mentioned with the Galveston thing, I feel like if people just couch their intent and understand that their diet is not a panacea and not trying to refute basic facts like calories are a thing, I don't really have as much criticism. You know, I might not recommend it as my approach to my clients, but some of this is bias and opinion. You know, there are plenty enough people who have success with diets that aren't mine. So I always have to kind of check myself. Am I arguing facts here or am I arguing opinions? And so... He does mention a few times that he doesn't really think the diet is for everyone and that he really wanted to find a way to make it simple to help adherence. And, you know, he doesn't make any, and again, this is in the clip that I saw with Huberman, he doesn't make any overzealous claims about vegetables or protein and what it's doing and like boosting this or, you know, mm -hmm. giving you some immediate health benefit or something like that. It was more like he found this simple template that he thinks people can stick to at least for a period of se several weeks, which of course I'd like to hear more than several weeks, but okay, fine enough. And so I think how he gets this adherence is, first of all, he does give them what foods to eat, especially in the beginning. Yep. And I don't do this. I don't really like giving people specific meal, meal plans, but I, I will tell you that people actually like that specificity in the beginning because they just want to be told what to do. The downside of that especially once we get past several weeks, is it doesn't, in my opinion, set them up well for the variety in life, the logistics in life that come up, that being told what to do, that that plan is going to fall apart. And so in my opinion, they actually need to learn enough about their food to be able to kind of navigate that, that space. But people oftentimes in the beginning just want some very simple template to enact. And so I think that's one of the ways that he you know, made it very clear, just follow these simple rules. Another thing that helps adherence is those 
Olympic kind of cheat days, right? People mm-hmm. like that kind of that carrot of I can do whatever I want. So yeah, so he basically says that he wants this adherence to this diet for a handful of weeks. And then he also says that, hey, you got to learn the rules, then you learn how to break them. So it sounds to me as though this is almost like a jumping off point from which then the person understands, okay, I'm going to start including fruit or oatmeal or, or whatever it is. So with all of that, like, I don't, I don't really have that many criticisms because again, can a person follow this and achieve body composition results? Yes, of course. Now, is it working any differently than cutting calories and filling you up on a whole foods? No. Does it need to be those exact foods of eliminating all of those things? No, but you know, he doesn't make any wild claims that I saw in terms of kind of like health or longevity by following this template. Interesting. So I think two, two things come to mind and I want to chat with you about the cheat meal thing. Cause I don't know that we've done that before. Yeah. But, so, but before that two, two things, one is I think one of the things Tim Ferriss does really well is he, he figures out like, what are the big decisions I can make that, that mean I don't have to make a bunch of little decisions going forward. Mm. And that's what I think about when I think about like the no white food, it's like, is it perfect? No, but it makes it like the one decision that probably catches a lot of the issues that people have. And so if it's like a no white food, then it's not going to have, then you're automatically going to say no to a lot of things that we could probably say like, probably better to avoid that. But so that's the first thing I think about. And the second thing is is a question, which is about the fruit. And I know you've just kind of dabbled in why he says this or what he's saying. Do you have any sense of what he says? Like, this is why the fructose or this, why no fruit? Is it similar to the white food in some way? Like, let's just blanket get rid of the as an option altogether or do you have a sense that like no it's like he thinks it's this or he says it's this yeah i don't actually remember from the clip if he addresses fructose specifically in any way i mean he calls it out to say don't have it but i i don't remember i don't remember if it's he just thinks that it kind of is is triggering in terms of a sweet thing or he truly believes it needs to be cut back on i i just don't remember okay cool so okay the cheat meal thing talk to us talk to us a little bit about your general philosophy around this idea of cheat days or cheat meals, if that's even better, as it relates to the argument that like, this is how you're sustainable with an otherwise restrictive diet, right? You just said like, there's the carrot on the Thursday night, like, or the Saturday, which I think is the day he always says to do it Saturday or Sunday. And like, that's the trick that's like, okay, I'm willing to do this six days a week because I have that seventh day. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? Obviously, obviously it doesn't seem like something that you're a big fan of. Otherwise, we'd we'd have talked about it by now. Right. I probably would have recommended that. And instead, I recommend, you know, Vaynergram Challenge, Lazy Macros, my Three Pillars Method. Yeah, I don't think I'm the biggest fan of kind of the once a week cheat day. My experience, I see a lot of people who have these restrict binge cycles, and it's not necessarily restrict binge in the sense of like eating disorder, but it is in the sense of going off the reservation and then this idea, well, I really have to clean up the next day, right? And so it's constantly like going back to poached chicken breast and iceberg lettuce and then face planting into a box of donuts. And it's just sort of like repeating this cycle over and over again. it's like, okay, well, maybe we can kind of even this out, is my opinion. So Tim also states that he doesn't believe that the cheat day can do enough damage, calorically speaking, to undo your work during the week. And in part, he argues that you start to learn when you really go eat, you know, six dozen donuts that you don't feel so great. So you just sort of naturally start to ratchet back how epic the cheat day is. Maybe, you know. Maybe that certainly is possible. And it certainly is possible that people could also undo the work they do during the week with a cheat day. So I would just rather focus on a more daily consistent approach to nutrition 
figuring out how to work in the foods you love more regularly, then again, what in my mind creates more of like a good versus bad paradigm and how people think about food. Whether or not the cheat day can really undo the work, it just depends on how much of a restriction you develop during the week with the protein, beans, and veggies versus how much you, you overeat on the weekends. But, you know, this is again, kind of why I really like to have a principles first approach to nutrition and why that's ultimately what we opened my masterclass with. It's not actually the 800 gram challenge or my three pillars method. We go through, okay, hey, calories matter and like micros matter and, and macros matter. And how you decide to put that all together is what dictates your outcome. So, so could somebody put this together and they really love cheat days and they really like to go epic on Saturday. And, and for that, they, you know, do a more restricted diet during the week. Sure. And I'm so, sure some people are thriving with it and then others are going to find a more sustainable place elsewhere. And so I just, I find that with my clients and sustainability that epic cheat day is less successful. Okay. Let's do the third one. Specific carbohydrate diet. What is this one? I've never heard yeah. of this before. Yeah, this is a little bit different than the other two, which is which is good to get some variety here because it's not about weight loss. It's really about trying to help a specific health condition. So apparently the specific carbohydrate diet was first described as a treatment for children with celiac disease. But before I get much further into the specifics of the diet, I think it's just really important to highlight a good rule of thumb about diets. And that is that when a diet is potentially useful for a health condition, that doesn't mean that we should think it's better or ideal for the general population, mm. right? Like we're not going to just start all of a sudden doing it and certainly doesn't prevent that disease for the general population. So as an example, avoiding gluten, which is the protein found in wheat, barley, and rye, that's essential for people to do with celiac. But people without celiac or without non-celiac gluten sensitivity, they don't need to avoid it. And actually the better is the diet is typically better when we do include it. So preemptively avoiding because some other people have to avoid it is not a good or sound nutrition strategy. And I just bring this up because I feel like we've talked about this in different ways of where we have this crossover where something starts because of a specific health condition and all of a sudden gen pop is like, okay, that's for me too. Continuous glucose monitors come to mind. Even that supplement we recently touched on, like you can, it was developed yep. for a disease condition, right? So if something is created for a specific health condition, that should be a major red flag or sign to you if you're gen pop that it's just like not for me, I should not be interested in it. Uh, okay, so anyway, it was first described in the 1920s as a way to treat celiac, like I mentioned. And then it was also hypothesized as a treatment for IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. And IBD is a really umbrella term for two conditions, Crohn's disease as well as ulcerative colitis, and basically, of course, chronic inflammation of the GI tract and some not so pleasant side effects. But since it was originally developed, we've learned that gluten is the real issue for celiac. So we know that the specific carbohydrate diet then isn't going to be appropriate for celiac. But it was in 1966 that a biochemist, Elaine Gottschall, she repopularized the diet because she had success with her daughter who has ulcerative colitis. It was cured supposedly by the diet. And so what does what do people on the specific carbohydrate diet get to eat? Well, it limits or totally excludes grains, most fibers, sugars, with the idea that these undigested starch products may trigger some changes in the bacteria that are in your gut and therefore inflammation. And so you're taking out all these refined and processed foods, no surprise. You're also taking out processed meats, anything with artificial sweeteners, soy, lactose, all of that has to go. You also can't eat things like potatoes and, and corn. And so you're really left eating some fruits, vegetables, 
fish, meat, and then even some homemade yogurt and aged cheeses. Now, the reason those two dairy products are left in is because when you're either have an aged cheese or when you're making the yogurt at home, you've removed some of that lactose content, content, which is one of the triggers they believe. And so they're low lactose foods. Got it. Okay. So you started this with making sure we understand that gen, you know, solving a very particular issue is not the same thing as being useful for those of us in the general population. But given that is this particular diet, do you recommend this or should people look at it if they do have IBD? Like, is this, is this an actual solve to that very specific thing? Yeah. The answer is maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nutrition. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of GI disorders are positively impacted by changing your diet. The real question is what exactly in the diet is making that change or making that impact. So using the specific carbohydrate diet, it's like, are all of those rules necessary? Does everybody have to remove all lactose forever? Does everybody have to remove all soy forever? You know, because again, when we're looking at nutrition, the goal should be to eliminate the fewest number of things possible. It shouldn't be to try to just eliminate everything. And so from what I can see in the literature that no, the specific carbohydrate diet doesn't have the evidence to suggest this is the best diet for IBD nor necessary for everyone with IBD. So there's a 2023 review paper by Sarah Sino in the show notes. And it's really great if somebody does have IBD. It's a great review paper about kind of nutrition strategies for IBD. I only saw two papers in PubMed that were specific to the specific carbohydrate diet. One was a smaller one with just kids, so 18 kids. They did find that the specific carbohydrate diet was helping in decreasing inflammation and introducing remission. But then a larger study with almost 200 adults compared the specific carbohydrate diet to the Mediterranean diet. And they found that the specific carbohydrate diet was no different than the Mediterranean diet and improving symptoms. And so since the Mediterranean diet is so much more inclusive than something like Mm. the specific carbohydrate diet, it's a no brainer to say, well, okay, well, if our symptoms don't get any better with either one, well, we're definitely gonna recommend something more Mediterranean diet than the specific carbohydrate diet. I mean, if if not for different nutrients that you'll get from it, simply by sustainability would be the argument, right? There certainly have been other different diet approaches besides the specific carbohydrate diet for IBD. But the short of it is there's nothing in the research that's like, okay, this is the diet that everybody has to do. It does seem that generally moving towards a more whole food based diet, no surprise there, has a positive influence. But what exactly is the right mixture of whole foods? It's probably going to be quite individualized. And really, I think somebody who has a condition like this should be working with a nutritionist to help them navigate the literature and the evidence versus what maybe is said on social media so that they can have some guidance as they find their individualized approach. I think I've never heard of this diet because it's not a catchy, it's not catchy title, specific carbohydrate diet. I think that's the reason that you haven't been asked far more often about whether or not it can solve somebody's problems. Okay. That was Galveston diet, slow carb diet. Do you think the 800 gram challenge is catchy? Yeah, because it's got like math and stuff in it. Everybody loves math okay. and hashtags. Perfect. Uh, okay, so that was Galveston diet, slow carb diet, specific carbohydrate diet. Do you have any others just to tease us? Do you have any others kind of in the queue that you're going to do kind of a diet review? I know that you kind of solicited a bunch of questions and I saw a lot of them. It was really funny to me. You were you're asking them over social media and then like people would ask and you'd be like, you did an episode on that. Yeah. This did an episode on that. I was, I was like, I think we're running out of diets to talk about. No. Are, are there more that, that you got in the queue? 
There's a lot more. Some that are coming to mind include the like F-factor diet, the V-shred diet, the Ray-peat pro-metabolic diet, oh the blood type diet, the Mediterranean diet. I don't think we've actually talked about the Mediterranean okay. diet. Oh, this is one that's interesting too, and I do want to do a full episode on it, is what actually is the standard American diet? Like, what's the real truth of what we're eating? Yeah. See, look at that. See, I'm so excited. I didn't know. I, other than that, those last couple, I have no idea what any of those are. So I look forward to learning all about them. Thank you, EC. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews and your questions. Find EC on social media. Uh, ask her your questions about various diets. We'll get them into a future episode. EC and I will be back next week for another episode of The Consistency Project.